In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. My name is... Well, thank you. <laughs> My name is John White. I used to hang around here. Um, thanks for the charity chuckles. Uh, it is good to have you here this morning. It is good to be able to worship together. It is good to see people back in Mayflower again after such a long time of only speaking to the camera. I have uh, an announcement that's rather sad this morning. I just found out that retired FBI agent Dan Bidwell passed away this past week. Uh, Jan passed away a few years ago. Dan has now joined her. He was my friend, my golf partner, uh, fellow law enforcement officer, and he will be missed. Let's take a second just to think about our own mortality and the love of God. Amen. On another note, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome a friend of mine, David Van Dyke, to our pulpit this morning. David and I, about a hundred years ago, were classmates at Western Theological Seminary. Uh, unlike me, who only had small churches and part-time pastorates, David had a long, successful ministry and ended his ministry, guess where? At the House of Hope in St. Paul, Minnesota. We, we know a couple of people who have gone there. Uh, David graduated from Western, and then he went on to Edinburgh, University of Edinburgh, where he studied theology and received his doctorate. Uh, David, it is really wonderful to have you here this morning. And I tried to talk him into becoming the interim here, but like me, he wanted to retire. Uh, and now I would like to invite Rachel Cooley up with an announcement, with, with a couple of announcements involving some things we'll be doing here at church. Good morning. This Tuesday at 9.30, we have the privilege of coming alongside the Priscilla Circle as we will have the chandeliers lowered and we are going to clean them. This process, I have learned, to be its most efficient way takes 32 people. So there's eight people around each chandelier and there are multiple steps with each globe as it gets cleaned and then put back and the light bulbs replaced. So we currently have about 18 people that have let me know that they're coming. So if you have a free couple of hours on Tuesday morning, we would love to see you here in the sanctuary to help with that. Another volunteer opportunity that we have this week that is very different is to go to Kids Food Basket on Wednesday morning from 8 to 10. We are going to help them harvest on their farm. And so the vegetables that we pick will then go into their food pantry that goes to feed the families in our community. So if you are interested in that, please see me after service or go on our website for more information. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. And now I'd like to invite Dr. Julia Brown with a word about today's music.
Felix Mendelssohn wrote in a letter to a friend in 1840 about his large work, uh, Hymn of Praise, or Lobgesang. He says, All the movements, vocal and instrumental, are composed to the words, Everything that breathes, praise the Lord. This multi-movement work is a statement of faith of Mendelssohn's and is also a universal invitation for all of us to praise God. The movement we'll hear during the offertory is extracted from this large work. Uh, it's a movement for solo, soprano, and tenor. And indeed, you'll see the, the, the words they sing, we will always sing praise to God. And then they go into a section saying, well, because God hears our cries and saves us from wandering in deep darkness and enemies that surround us. So throughout this work, Mendelssohn is juxtaposing lightness and dark. And uh, inspired by this Mendelssohn, then I also picked two Mendelssohn organ works. So we have today kind of a mini Mendelssohn fest, <clears throat> because we can never have too much Mendelssohn. Um, another, uh, something that's a little different than our usual uh, uh, section in the service is at the end, after the congregational prayer, we normally join our vo voices in the spoken Lord's Prayer. Today, we will uh, experience that Lord's Prayer through song. So uh, Bill Potts will be singing probably the most familiar setting of those words by Albert Malott. And the reason for that is often when we take very familiar words and set them to music, something new shines out of those words. So I invite you as we hear the sung Lord's Prayer today that you meditate on those words and find something new in those very familiar, that very familiar prayer. Thank you, Julia. Now I would invite you to simply take a deep breath in and breathe out. Think about the glory of creation. Think about our perception of creation. Think about the mystery that we call God and the unending love that we call Christ. Think about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that is with you. It's Sunday morning, and it's time for church.
Let us pray. Most merciful God, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Renew us. Lead us. So that we may delight in your will and follow your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, the good news is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ did not come to condemn the world. Christ came to save the world. We are an Easter people, and hallelujah is our name. Please be seated. I would like to invite the Goodson family forward. David, would you please hand me the water? Thank you. Ruth will be back next week. Thank you. Baptism is a sign and symbol of God's love for us. We are going to meet Sophie this morning. Now, Sophie was loved before she was created. Sophie will always be loved. But today we will symbolically acknowledge that God's love is here. So, I have questions for you this morning. Do you promise to raise Sophie in the faith following Jesus Christ as best as you are able? Do you promise to bring her to church when you are able? Do you promise to love her forever? That's an easy one, isn't it? (laughs) Do you promise as best as you are able 
that you will live by the laws and the promises of Christ our Lord. Do you desire that this child be baptized? Thank you. Members of the congregation and friends, do you promise when available, as best as you are able, when Sophie comes into your life, that you will pray for her, that you will love her, and that you will guide her in the way of Christ? If so, say, I do. Thank you. Come forward, please. Sophie, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. God loves you. God loves you, sweetheart, and we do too. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life, for our loving children, and for Sophie coming here this morning. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through verse 29. Prior to the reading, the disciples are going about talking about Jesus, preaching, and performing miracles. Starting with verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. 
Others said, He is Elijah. And still others claimed, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John, and she wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I'll give you, up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What will I ask for? And the mother replied, The head of John the Baptist. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. I wonder if after hearing that text, you paused even just a little bit before you responded by saying, thanks be to God. Because it's hard to give thanks to a horrible text like that. That is a horrendous story full of debauchery, murder, corruption, lying, even stupidity, what is on full display right there in Mark's Gospel is nothing less than the overfed gluttony of empire. An empire that makes its own rules, an empire that is accountable to no one, and an empire in which people are pawns, 
easily dispensed with. Its excesses are unlimited as they are outrageous. It's almost like billionaires racing each other to see who can shoot themselves into space in their own rocket first. It's outlandish. Empire knows no limits. It has no restraints. It is out of touch with real people and their very real needs. And it runs roughshod over anyone in its way. The only thing that matters in empire is for those in power to stay in power merely for the sake of having power. And I'd like to suggest that suddenly that ancient, grotesque, out-of-control banquet looks rather familiar. We recognize that world, don't we? Are we, in fact, not living in a world much like that? You'll remember from the text that Herod had stolen his brother's wife and that John the Baptist could not stop criticizing and haranguing publicly about that. So Herod has John arrested, but Herod is apparently perplexed by this. He, he believes that John is a holy man. He knows he has a big following. And then that strange line, but, but Herod liked to listen to him sometimes. I think there's a whole sermon just in that uh, strange account. So Herod doesn't know what to do. He throws himself a big, huge birthday party, a big, lavish affair. He invites the elites, the titans, the plutocrats, the one half of the one percenters. There they all are, gathered at this big, loud, raucous banquet to honor Herod. And then at some point in the evening, Herod's daughter slithers into the room and does some kind of dance. And all we know is that it pleased everyone in the room, including Herod, who was so taken by this dance that he said, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Anything. I will even give you half of my kingdom. That must have been some dance. Half of my kingdom. Well, the girl doesn't know what to ask for, so she turns to her mother, who's also no fan of John the Baptist, and she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so that's what the girl does. She asks for that. And then Herod, we read, is sort of greatly perplexed and grieved even, because he likes John, sort of, but he, but he made this oath, he made a promise, and then like every compromised politician who knows right from wrong, Herod does the wrong thing. He caves under the pressure and does the wrong thing and orders the beheading of John the Baptist. Herod was free to make up his own mind. He was free to make his own decision in the matter. But that's not what he does and that's what happens when empire shapes your thinking, shapes your values, shapes the way you view other people. 
and carry yourself in the world. That's the reality of the world then, and sadly, it's all too often the reality of our world today. Because things do seem broken, don't they? They seem out of control, overwhelming sometimes. Our democracy is apparently far more fragile than many of us realized. We are so divided as a country we can't even agree on basic truths, let alone verifiable facts about the history of our own country. We are bearing witness these days to a bizarre mixture of white nationalism, misplaced and misguided patriotism, and a horribly warped and distorted, almost unrecognizable view of Christianity. And it is a dangerous and explosive cocktail. There is just so much uncertainty in the world. Now, I think Mark, as a gospel writer, is a really good writer. But I think he might be even a better editor. Because as was alluded to in the reading of the scripture, what happens just prior to this story is Jesus sending out the twelve. He commissions the twelve and sends them out. No more fishing nets for them. They've been called to serve the Lord, and that's what they're going to do. Filled with anticipation, filled with high hopes, they set out. You know, a lot of things begin in anticipation and with high hopes. But sooner or later, reality makes its way into the equation. So those disciples filled with high hopes and great anticipation are sent out proclaim the gospel only to come slinking home a short while later to bury one of their own. One just like themselves who was called and sent out to proclaim the gospel. John the Baptist was faithful and his head ended up on a platter as a kind of cruel joke carried out by deplorable people. Apparently being a disciple or a follower of Jesus in a world under the heavy influence of empire is not easy. And Mark wants us to know that. I had a friend who was president of a seminary, and I heard her tell a story one time about a friend of hers who was also a pastor Her friend signed up to go on a cruise for a week and somehow got roped into being the volunteer chaplain for the week. The duties were supposed to be minimal. On the second day of the cruise, the captain came over the public address system and announced that one of the passengers had gone overboard in an apparent suicide attempt. The captain said, I'm suspending all onboard activities. I'm closing down the buffet and the casino and all the activities. And I'm going to turn the ship around. 
and we're going to backtrack our original route for a while. And I'd like all of the passengers to go up on deck and stand along the rails and search for the missing body. And that's what he did. He turned the ship around, and for about an hour, the, the ship backtracked its original route. After finding nothing, the captain came back on and said, I'm now going to turn the ship back around. We will resume our original route. But I'd still like you to stay out on that deck and search for anything, a sign of anything. Well, when nothing was found and the passengers were relieved of their duties, the reaction from those pleasure cruise passengers was swift and loud. They were furious with the captain for his decision to turn that ship around. They were furious with him for shutting down the buffet and closing the casino. And they bombarded the captain with angry, hostile messages and emails condemning him for his decision. In the wake of an unimaginable human tra tragedy, pleasure passengers were inconvenienced for two hours. My friend told that story, speaking at a seminary graduation, standing there and looking out at all of those graduates with their newly minted Masters of Divinity degrees, filled with anticipation and hope. She told that story, and then she said to them, that is the kind of world into which you are going to proclaim the gospel. After the commissioning and sending out of the Twelve, Mark inserts this cautionary tale, this reality check for any who thought being faithful in this life is going to be easy. It is not and Mark wants us to know that because it didn't take long for those eager disciples filled with anticipation to bump hard up against reality. But if Mark was a good editor and did it here, I have to believe that Mark also did it immediately following this horrendous story of John's death. Because following that sober, macabre account of Herod's birthday party banquet, Mark's gospel moves smoothly into another banquet story of sorts. This one took place on the side of a hill. You know the story. As many as 5,000 people were there that day. Herod's banquet was for an elite few. The one that came next on the side of the hill was for any and all who were hungry. Herod's banquet was about death. And immediately after that, almost like a balm in a weary, mixed-up world, comes this gathering on the side of a hill where there is food for the hungry and rest for the weary. Out of a little comes not just enough, 
but a great abundance. And dare we even say in a world like ours, hope. Hope came to those hungry people on the side of the hill. And hope came to those disciples who were sent out only to be discouraged. And I would like to make the case this morning that there is hope for us as well. I recently heard about a large Methodist church, one of those mega praise barn churches that did a survey of their congregation asking them about their emotions and feelings during the height of the pandemic. They sent uh, 17 different feelings and emotions and they asked everyone in the congregation to rank their top three in order of what they were experiencing and feeling during the pandemic. About 4,700 people responded to that survey. And this is what people said. People in their 20s said in this order, anxiousness, uncertain, overwhelmed. People in their 30s said anxious, overwhelmed, uncertain. People in their 40s said anxious, uncertain, overwhelmed. People in their 50s said anxious, uncertain, frustrated. People in their 60s said anxious, uncertain, hopeful. People in their 70s said hopeful, loved, anxious. And people in their 80s on up responded hopeful, loved, lonely. And isn't, isn't it interesting that only people 70 years of age and higher listed hopeful as their number one response? And furthermore, that only people 80 years of age and older, didn't list anxious at all as part of their top three. And you would think it would be just the opposite. Given their age, given their vulnerability to the virus, you would think that they, of any of us, would have the most reason to be anxious. But that didn't even appear in the top three. And it makes at least me wonder what those older saints knew that those younger ones didn't or hadn't yet discovered for themselves. What storms had they had to face and deal with along the way? What battles had they fought and lived to tell about them? Which of life's hard realities were they forced to deal with And in spite of all of it, somehow discovered hope. Their faith gave them reasons for hope. Because something, something allowed those people in the older age brackets 
to cling to hope in a time of national anxiety and panic and fear. They clung to hope. Something gave them hope. And I think it was their faith. Faith that allowed them to sing like the saints before them, to sing a song full of the faith that the dark past had taught them. Anticipation, reality, hope. If there's a better description of the life of faith, I'm not sure I know what it is. May God always, always grant us hope, as well as the wisdom and the courage necessary for the living of our days. Amen. We are a people of hope. We are a people of Christ. Let us give as we are able.
us pray. Accept these gifts, we ask you, O Lord. Put them to use in this church, in this community, in this nation, and in this world. We return to you what you have given to us. Amen. Please be seated. Now comes a time when we gather together in prayer. Are there any needs that you would like to address before the congregation? For all the things that you have named in your heart, for all the worries that you are facing, for all the joys that you have, for all your concerns, let us approach the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O great mystery, holy, beyond our understanding, billions of light years away, yet as close to us as our beating hearts, we stand before you in awe, in wonder. We accept the mystery. And we accept the love. Some come here this morning, Lord, with heavy hearts. Wherever they are and whatever they need, we ask that you comfort them. Some come here in absolute joy. We ask that you sustain them and let them share their joy with others. Some come here in an age-old tradition to dedicate a child to you. Bless Sophie all her life and beyond. Some come here confused. Help them in their confusion. And Lord God, as David preached this morning, let us look to hope. Yes, we are a nation divided. Yes, we have news networks that play to the lowest common denominator. Yes, we play on single issues that divide us, but Lord God, bring us hope and remind us that we are your people. Politics aside, we belong to you. And so in hope, sustain us. Let us feel your presence. Let us seek understanding. 
And most of all, let us love wastefully. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And we will continue with the Lord's Prayer in a musical setting.
And now, people of God, go forth into the world in peace and in courage. Hold to the good. Honor all of God's children. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.